it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get A through it. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, we've got an interesting show scheduled. I'm uh, supposed to be connecting um, this first hour with Chuck Collins, and uh, I haven't heard from him yet, but we'll see what happens with that. If uh, not, we'll find an appropriate substitute but coming up later in the show during the third half of our three-hour tour we're going to talk with uh, a teenage runaway turned hollywood executive who uh, shares tips for overcoming adversity um, in her memoir called blind pony as true a story as i can tell by Hollywood executive Samantha Hart. That's coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Before that, we're going to talk with, uh, we're scheduled to talk with, the uh, author of a uh, new book. She is a lecturer lecturer of sociology and uh, feminist scholar at Case Western Reserve University um, and the author of a book called Are We the 99%? that uh, has kind of a nuanced analysis of the Occupy movement, feminism, and intersectionality. Her name is Heather Hurwitz, and she joins us during the second hour of our uh, three-hour tour. Now, we were scheduled to talk with uh, Chuck Collins from um, the Institute for Policy Studies uh, about uh, Trump's billionaire enablers, the 63 billionaires worth $243 billion who bankrolled Trump's re-election bid. And uh, pretty interesting stuff that has come out. There's also from uh, the Institute for Policy Studies a, uh, a new report um, 
on U.S. billionaire wealth surpassing $1.1 trillion since mid-March, 10 months into the COVID-19 crisis. 660 billionaires see their wealth rise 40%. And we're going to talk about what that means for, you know, us, us little guys when, uh, when I connect with Chuck, which I, which I hope will be shortly. If not, we'll, uh, we'll substitute with something else. In the meantime, I'm going to take a short break and see if I can uh, track down Chuck. for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side but When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side Welcome back, everybody. Haven't been able to reach uh, the guest I had scheduled, so here's uh, an encore from the archives. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My guest this hour is uh, the multi-talented uh, uh, journalist, researcher, writer of nonfiction and literary teen fiction. Um, she has a new book out. Well, actually, I, I, I want to mention a couple of books that she's already written. She is the author of Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary, The Game of Love and Death, and uh, Divine Intervention. She has a new book that uh, is uh, considered to be somewhat critical, uh, a critical biography of Donald Trump that is uh, the first of its kind, a, uh, a book designed for young adult readers about a city. Uh, a biography of a sitting president called Unprecedented. And, of course, I'm talking about Martha Brockenbrow. Martha, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me back. Um, this is such a weird coincidence because it was just a week ago that I had, um, uh, give me a minute, uh, L.A. Kaufman, who is uh, somewhat of an activist, and she was involved with that group that did the um, the fake Washington Post stories. Oh, that, yeah. And used yeah. the same phrase, unprecedented, as their headline. <laughs> And I mentioned you and your book when I talked to uh, L.A. last week, and I thought that was just the weirdest uh, coincidence. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that it was, in fact, a coincidence. But what made you pick this title, Unprecedented, for a biography of the president? Well, so those of us who followed Trump's Twitter feed carefully know that from time to time, he uh, misspells something um, or invents an entirely new word. And this this is an example of a new word invented by Trump, unprecedented. He meant unprecedented. Um, and it just seemed like the perfect title for a biography of him because so much of what he has brought to the Oval Office really is unprecedented. And uh, I couldn't resist. And perhaps unpresidential? Um, you could probably make a case that it's unpresidential, um, whether for good or for bad, probably depends on your point of view of the man. But def- definitely uh, there's some unpresidential behavior going on. Now, you really dug into this book from, from a, a, a journalistic standpoint, researching and putting together a whole timeline of, of Trump's complete biography. This isn't Tales from the Campaign Trail or a tell-all book from inside the White House. This is the life of Donald Trump. Um, why did you want to do this book, and in particular, um, gear it toward young adults? Well, I wanted to write this book for young people, because I was concerned about what they might be told about the president. Typically, biographies of presidents written for younger readers tend to be glowing accounts um, of their George, lives and careers. George, and, George Washington um, and the know, cherry tree. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the sort of mythology that is memorable, it is charming. And I uh, don't think it's something that should be told to children. I think that it's important to tell kids the truth. And so I wanted to do that knowing that it would be a a delicate and possibly controversial prospect. What kind of reactions have you gotten from people about the book? Um, You know, uh, young people, the, the, the first group that I told about this was a group of a few hundred students in Farmville, Virginia. And I was there talking with them about Alexander Hamilton, who I knew was beloved because of the musical. And I mentioned that I had this book on Trump coming out and they went berserk. They wanted me to read it to them. And so I read it to, you know, I read portions to them and um, the kids were really super interested. And of course they are, you know, it's what absolutely dominates the media, and they deserve to have someone 
telling them about Trump, you know, with these young readers in mind. These are kids who did not grow up during the Vietnam War, most of whom weren't alive for 9-11. And so what my book does that an adult book might not do is provide this context. And I wanted to cover not just the campaign stuff, but really all of his life so that readers could be um, certain that I was providing meaningful patterns of behavior, because of course those patterns of behavior predict future behavior. And there is a a credibility issue with the president, and there is a credibility issue with news these days. I, yes, I think that's true. I don't think the credibility issues are in any way the same. I, I'm, um, I'm not. It's, I, I, I guess what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying is, in in research for this book. How do you weigh through the things that may not be true and accurate and and call information that you feel solid about? That's a great question. Um, so and and historians face this all the time and and there's kind of this um, misunderstanding that a primary source is an unimpeachable source and Primary sources can also be inaccurate. When I was doing my book on Alexander Hamilton, for example, his good buddy Hercules Mulligan tended to exaggerate what Hamilton did. And so um, we always have to be skeptical of information we're looking at. And we can say, hey, um, is there another source that confirms this? Um, and so, you know, some sources are more reliable than others. For example, congressional testimony. When I'm looking at the government's transcript of testimony, whether it's for Donald Trump's father or Donald Trump's son, um, I trust that that was what was actually said. Now, whether it was true is another matter, and that's where you look to other sources. And so there's always a great deal of thinking going on. Um, and, you know, how I present the information. There are more than 1,400 footnotes in this book and (laughs) quite a few pages of additional back matter um, because I did want people to know exactly where I learned things. Were there things that you uncovered that that surprised you? You must have had some idea where this book was going to go before you started, but... Were, were there some things that jumped up and, and just took you completely by surprise? Well, so I did have some idea based on what I'd seen on the campaign trail um, uh, and, you know, based on what I knew of his life from watching him on The Apprentice and being vaguely aware of tabloid news stories from the 1980s. Um, but, yeah, definitely some things surprised me. You know how we often read that Donald Trump is chaotic and unpredictable? Yeah. Um, he, may seem, he may seem chaotic. He's completely predictable. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. TomSumnerProgram.com TomSumnerProgram.com
Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My uh, guest this hour, as uh, promised, is from the uh, Institute for Policy Studies and uh, also inequality.org. He writes frequently on uh, wealth inequality and recently came out with uh, some comments uh, in the wake of the uh, capital breach uh, with regard to billionaires who supported Trump and, and how they really didn't. Um, in fact, here's a, here's a quote uh, from my guest. The titans of our economy have no right to feel shocked. That from my guest Chuck Collins, who joins me by phone. Hi, Chuck. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, let's let's talk about this a little bit. But first, um, just just briefly, if we can refamiliarize people with the Institute for Policy Studies and Inequality.org, and and the role you play in the in the uh, uh, reports that you come out with, because there's there's a brand new one about. Uh, billionaire wealth gain during the pandemic that I think we'll probably touch on as well. Yeah, um, well, uh, I direct the program on inequality uh, at the Institute for Policy Studies, and people can read about our work and research at inequality.org. And we've been looking, for a decade now, we've been sort of looking at the trends in terms of uh, the growing concentration of wealth at the very top. And then during the pandemic, we've sort of been struck by how, you know, while everyone else's fortunes are declining and health at risk, um, that the billionaire class in the United States is, is you know, it's never been better. Uh, you know, since mid-March, the 660 billionaires in the United States have seen their collective wealth go up oh, almost $1.2 trillion uh, as of this morning. Um, and and they have more than four trillion dollars combined, which is more is double half the bottom of U.S. households combined. So it's it's just pooling more and more at the top, even during the pandemic. And and that that gain alone, just the money that's been gained by these billionaires during the pandemic since last March, would be. Um, almost enough to to completely fund newly elected President uh, Joe Biden's one point nine trillion dollar uh, coronavirus relief package. Yeah, it could it could pay for the sort of direct support to working families, um, you know, the different uh, you know stimulus checks and support for unemployed workers. Uh, it 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 could definitely that offset that. Uh, and and though it seems far fetched, uh, you know some members of Congress have said, "Well, maybe we this is a windfall. A few hundred people have reaped uh, a windfall in 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 large part because Main Street economies have been shut down. The competition has been shut down, and we're all dependent on cloud-based services and home, you know, online retail and big pharmas." creating vaccines. We're, you're, we're sort of in an unusually dependent position with a couple hundred companies and a couple hundred billionaires. And it's a windfall. Maybe we should tax that and use it to offset the, the hard times that most people are experiencing. Has it been done that way in the past? 
You know, in uh, in World War II and in, in the Korean War, we had what was called an excess profits tax. It came out of a recognition that, uh, again, during a time of war, and I think it's similar to today, we need to pull together and, and make shared sacrifices. And if some people are reaping enormous windfalls that that uh, are through really no, you know, not entirely their effort, uh, that we should capture that. We should tax that. You know, H- Harry Truman... Um, when he was a senator from Kansas, his whole campaign during the World War II, he did these hearings. The Truman Committee it was called. He brought the war profiteers before a congressional committee and, and drilled them. You know, uh, hey, we're we're paying you to build these weapons, and we're paying you to build these, you know, uh, housing on military bases, and you're reaping windfall profits. That's wrong during a time of war, and I think we should be saying. This is wrong. It's wrong to reap profits during during this pandemic when so many people have lost their lives, their health, and their wealth. And, and is it um, is this the classic example of a windfall? Something unexpected happens, and you profit from it. Well, in in some ways, you know, if you think um, if if you and I opened up a lemonade stand, you know. Uh, outside Tiger Stadium on a hot day, we would be entrepreneurial. You know that 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 that's yeah. reward should be rewarded. But if uh, if we're selling bottled water for a marked up price during a drought or a famine or in a Flint a Flint situation, if we're selling bottled water in Flint during the the worst of the situation for profit, that's profiteering and that's that's wrong. And you know. It sometimes it's a fuzzy line, but that's where you need uh, rule makers, government, to step in and protect the rest of the population from the profiteering activity, the antisocial profiteering antics. Now let's go back to what I uh, originally brought up, and that was um, the idea that there were 63 billionaires that bankrolled Trump's reelection bill. Uh, bid, or at least um, contributed something like uh, what was it? Uh, what was the figure? I think um, like thirty-three million to the Victory yeah, Fund. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which uh, and the the Trump Victory Fund was what um, a uh, a fund was it was a joint fundraising account for the Trump twenty twenty campaign and the RNC, the Republican National Committee. Um, did they also support Joe Biden? Very often people on that level like to hedge their bets by contributing to both sides. Yeah, we, we looked at um, a bunch of the sort of billionaire donors during the presidential campaign, and, and you're absolutely right, Tom. There are, there are people who give to both campaigns. It's kind of their way of preserving access and... and uh, you know, preserving a pipeline of communication or a line of communication. In this case, we looked at the donors that only gave to Trump and only gave, you know, to particularly this victory fund, which was in the last year and a half, you know, 2019, 2020. Because, you know, there were a lot of people that gave in 2016 and there were, you know, Republican donors. um, And you could sort of say, well, we didn't know who Trump was. We didn't know what he was about. But by 2019, it's pretty clear uh, you have somebody running 
uh, who who doesn't who has a sort of authoritarian streak. He's you know he's got a uh, he's not really interested in democracy and 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 he's kind of breaking all the rules in terms of uh, norms and 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 truth telling. So you know you, you might have had a you know might have given to the 2016 inaugural committee or something like that. But these are the donors who really understood what Trump was about, and they still were funneling you know, millions of dollars in contributions. And this was just the, the, the Trump Victory Fund was just one of a number of vehicles, but we kind of zeroed in on that because it was, it was sort of the most clearly focused on um, getting money to the Trump campaign and his pick of candidates. And, and speaking of his pick of can- candidates, he uh, raised an awful lot of money during the um, uh, rigged election campaign, um, ostensibly to overturn the results. But it, it, he's sitting on something like $200 million. And it, do you think that he's uh, going to be funneling that money into the campaigns of uh, people who give primary challenges to people who voted against him in impeachment and the um, uh, electoral college certification? Yeah, I mean, it definitely goes into his war chest for whatever purposes uh, like that he wants to advance. And, you know, these were billionaires contributing to that, but a lot of, a lot of small donors chipped in to that fund and it was you know it's kind of manipulative in a way to to run a sort of phony you know uh campaign okay you know stop the steal and raise so much money i think it was close to 300 million dollars raised from the trump base uh at that moment and and you know clearly he's going to need the money whether it's for legal defense or or you know trying to knock off his opponents um but you know, two hundred million dollars is in politics. You can you can do some you can you can do some damage with that amount of money. The um, the release that uh, that I got from you uh, from the uh, from IPS, the Institute for Policy Studies, um, I mentioned the quote earlier: "The titans of our economy have no right to feel shocked." Um, is is there a sense that that they've pretended some sort of shock in the wake of the capital breach? Yeah, I mean, I think what's it's interesting is to see both a number of companies and a lot of major donors kind of uh, distance themselves from Trump after January 6th. And and yet, I think you, you have to say, well, look, again, if... It's a little late I, for I that now. Told you, I could have told you he was not going to... Uh, go for a peaceful transfer of power. He he wasn't going to go for that in 2016. He's been consistent. You know, if he had lost to Hillary Clinton, he would never have accepted those results either. Uh, he's not somebody who will ever gracefully accept losing anything. You know that that, that we know that about him. So so we know knew going into this, and anybody who you know. But then the logical extension of that is you you whip up a mob. You know you you call you call on your people to disrupt things and. Um, so yeah, there's there's some late day conversions, you know, whether it's our, our very own Michigan Betsy DeVos, who, you know, really took to the ver- to the final minute to realize that he was not a small D Democrat. He was he didn't care about democratic norms or institutions. 
he's all in it for himself. And, you know, there are, but, you know, these were donors and I think some of them would still stand by him because Trump delivered for them. If you look at who yeah, that's, are the billionaires I'm, who I'm, gave to them. I'm I'm glad you're bringing that up because that was one of the things that I was going to ask you. These these people, um, they're not the the usual MAGA crowd. You know, they're not running around in red baseball hats and carrying Trump flags. Um, they're not as easy to um, to win over. Um, they're, they're smart people and, and they make a lot of money because they're smart people. Um, how are they not turned off by this guy? Is they it, is it because he's doing things that they have personally and professionally benefited from? Well, if, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are w essentially willing to support an authoritarian anti-democratic candidate because he delivers uh for them you know so the number one donor kelsey warren uh who's you know worth about 2.9 billion he's the one that gave he gave almost you know he gave the largest number of donations eight donations 2.2 million dollars to the trump victory fund who, who is kelsey warren he's a gas pipeline magnet um Harold Hamm, you know, a, a fracking pipeline billionaire. That that. So if you're in the oil and gas industry, and you're reading the signs of the times, and you see, okay, we have this climate disruption, climate crisis, and and any sane future president is going to have to address that, and we're going to have to address issues like carbon emissions. It's not in your interest. You you want to keep the party rolling. You want to keep the the, <laughs> the 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 wheel turning as long as you can to extract as much as you can. And Trump is your guy. Um, if you are a casino operator like Sheldon Adelson or, or one of the other big donors, um, you know, uh, Steve Wynn, you know, Gene Ruffin, these are all billionaire casino owners who are gambling because Trump has been good to them. So, you know, that's, that they're willing to look the other way. And in the same way, probably, wealthy uh german industrialists look the other way at the rise of hitler or or franco in spain or or authoritarian leaders all over the world they they deliver for a certain segment of their wealthy donor class and they're and those folks are just going to you know they're they have different interests than you and i but as of january 20th of course the the tide has turned and and joe biden was sworn in as the what 46th president of the united states and uh control of the senate has um i i hesitate to call it a flip chuck because it, it leveled off <laughs> yeah a slide yeah whatever it's, it's 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 50 50 now in the senate with a democratic majority in the house but that does give biden an edge to do some things that might not be as uh, billionaire class friendly as they might like what's the likelihood that um that Biden can be at all successful in in his stated efforts uh, or desires to um, 
have a better distribution of wealth? Well, I think, you know... Or a more equitable one. He's, he's focused in the right way, which is in the immediate term, we just have to deal with the with the health crisis and the economic disruption from that. Uh, we need to help people. We need to help the non-wealthy, the most vulnerable people in our society, everybody, get through the next year. And, you know not have to be faced with choices between going into dangerous, you know, health situations and working, you know, by and and all the people who are unemployed right now, who are, you know, whose rent is running out, who's, you know, are facing foreclosure, all these economic crises. So it makes sense. But I think there's a bunch of things that Biden has said he'll do and probably will do that I think will start to reverse these 40-year trends of growing income and wealth inequality, Um, you know, support for raising the minimum wage, uh, college debt relief, um, support for, you know, essential workers who don't have access to health insurance and are the most vulnerable and most exposed right now, and taxing people who are in the richest group. You know, uh, he said income's over 400,000, but a bunch of the proposals he's putting forward are really for the $3 million income and up group, uh, treating their income, taxing work, ta- taxing income from wealth at the same rates as income from work, things like that, could could begin to sort of chip away at, at that imbalance of wealth. Was there a time when things were working well? Um, I mean, you and I know from from growing up in Michigan that certainly uh, the heyday of uh, the automotive industry and production in this country, following World War II and into the all the way into the 70s, um, the UAW takes credit for creating the middle class. But um, was that um, was there a tax foundation? that supported those efforts yeah there was a there was a formula in those uh 30 years after world war ii which was uh we had a much more progressive tax system the super wealthy paid higher income taxes they didn't complain also in the in the and organized to cut their taxes i mean we're talking you know from 1930 through the eisenhower years into the kennedy administration we had very steeply progressive income taxes. We had a robust inheritance tax that that limited the buildup of kind of dynastic wealth. And that tax revenue paid for infrastructure. It paid for, you know, I-75 and it paid for, um, you know, rural development and urban development. And it paid for low-cost college uh, and 1% mortgages, you know, and one part of my family is from Ohio, but they got, you know, the farmer's home 35-year, 1% fixed-rate loan to buy the farm. Uh, and all over Michigan, you can find farmers who bought their farms with a farmer's home post-World War II loan, just loan. So, so basically, we taxed the rich, and we made investments to help lift up and build a middle class. Uh, and some of those were racially exclusive, at least initially. Um, you know, the GI Bill uh in the South didn't, you know, returning veterans uh, to the South or African-American did not have the same access to higher education. Some of those housing programs were discriminatory in the early phases. 
Um, but the basic idea of taxing wealth and investing it in things that lift everybody up is a formula that we could easily go back to, and I think we need to go back to uh, if we're going to keep our society from pulling apart further. Do you think there would be um, a, a a strong pushback if if Biden and legislative Democrats work in that direction more than the natural tendency to protect what I believe is mine? You know, what's interesting is some of the things we're talking about are wildly popular, even among Republicans. The idea that the wealthy should pay their fair taxes, fair share of taxes, that there should maybe even be a wealth tax on, on billionaires. Uh, you know, majority of Republicans support that idea. Uh, raising the minimum wage is a popular idea. People voted in the state of Florida uh, to, to elect Donald Trump and to raise the state minimum wage to $15. Um, you know, so the things that we're talking about, there'll be, there'll be complaints, but they're not, you know, there'll be complaints among the billionaire class, maybe, or among people who are in the top 10% who, uh, you know, who've, who've reaped most of the benefits of the last 40 years. They may push back and they have a lot of power because they have a lot of money and power and influence. But that doesn't mean these aren't popular or even majority, majority ideas. How is it that we ended up stuck in in what seems like a cycle of ever-widening income inequality? Well, one of, the, one of the unfortunate things is when wealth concentrates in fewer hands, we're also talking about concentrated power. And, uh, you know, 100 years ago, we had our first Gilded Age coming out of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, I remember, Louis, you know, Louis Brandeis at the time said, you know, you can have concentrated wealth in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. And uh, and so, you know, we as a society organized to, you know, f for the for those kind of shared prosperity years after World War II. Um, but I would say what's happened is our political system has been captured by a couple thousand super rich and a couple hundred global corporations. They call the shots, including the power to stop things, block changes. And they've used that power well in the last few decades to kind of keep the rules tilted to benefit the wealthy at the expense of everyone else. Did Ronald Reagan open those, uh, open those gates? Well, in some ways it started before Reagan. It started in the late 70s. You, you know, those were the years when companies really started to push back against their workers. Uh, it was a time of globalization, so companies were pitting workers in other countries against U.S. workers. So we started to see that, you know, going lean and mean. Uh, wages stopped rising with uh, productivity. You know, we've we've had extraordinary worker productivity in the last few decades, but worker wages have not uh, shared in that productivity. Chuck, I have um, to put so a, a lot of that started. I have to put a comma here, Chuck, because I have to go to break. Sure. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk a little more? Oh, sure. 
Okay, my guest is Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies, and uh, you can find out lots about them at inequality.org. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, 
where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies. Chuck, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through that. No worries. Good to be with you, Tom. Um, Chuck, the uh, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, something we've. I think we've we've come to realize pretty universally, and that is that the power in this country rests in the hands of a very few very wealthy people. What can John Q. Public even do about it at this point? Well, I think it is partly, you know, uh, it's it's waking up to the extent that, uh, you know, we are kind of now on, on inequality autopilot. And if we kind of, if the next 20 years are like the last 40 years, uh, we're we're going to be more and more unequal. So you know, I think it is a it is important to talk to our neighbors, to talk to our elected officials, and say, you know, I'm concerned about these inequalities, and realize it's both how do we raise the floor to kind of have sort of a decency, basic minimum income, uh, you know, health care, you know, just look over to Windsor or Port or Sarnia and just say, you know, the folks who are 40 miles away have a, a much better social safety net than we do in the United States. They don't, they don't have the same level of fear of destitution and, and loss. Um, and we have to do something not only about raising the floor and, and, but investing in opportunity for everybody, you know, and then finally we have to address the concentration of wealth. We have to not be afraid of talking about taxing the very wealthy, restoring some of the, uh, elements of the tax system we had under President Eisenhower and under President Kennedy, that where wealthy people paid a little bit more. Um, and Tom, you, I have a book coming out in a couple of months uh, that I'll I'll look forward to talking to you about. But it's yeah. about how the wealthy hide their money and hire planners to create these trusts and hide money. And that's that's one of the things we're really going to have to wake up to. We can't. We can't have a fair tax system if the super rich, and I'm talking about the richest one-tenth of one percent, can hire people to effectively hide their money. So that's going to be one of our challenges. But I think, I think we have an opening now. We have the political will. We have you know, at least members of Congress who aren't going to block some of the reforms we need to make. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Has the evolving, has evolving technology and and the growth of of automation made the uh, the income inequality um, separation the the cycle I mentioned earlier um, more complicated. It has because um, you know between technology and globalization, uh, you know as we know a worker in Flint is has to compete with a worker 
in a Maculadora border border factory in Mexico who's competing with a worker in China. Um, so you have these, you know, uh, companies that are able to pit workers against each other and also pit communities against each other. Who's going to who's going to have lower standards, environmental standards, et cetera? Who's going it isn't to just on a, that basis. It isn't just a matter of raising the minimum wage anymore because there's there's going to be a job shortage. Yeah. No, in fact, you know, one of the things that uh, advanced industrial countries are looking at is could, can we raise the minimum wage but also shorten, shorten the work week? You know, can we spread some of the work around and people not have to toil as much as they have? You know, we have all these technological advances, and the promise of that was always going to be that we would, we would have more free time. I don't know anybody who's got more free time. It sure doesn't uh, seem like all, it. Yeah, we're all everybody's, everybody's running faster and harder. So, and and then there are people who are still outside the workforce. So let's let's use our technologies to uh, spend more time with the people we love and less time in 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 toil. With the reports that um, you and and others, your colleagues at the uh, Institute for Policy Studies and Inequality dot org. Um, and and even some of the people that uh, different organizations that you partner with, we've talked about the patriotic millionaires before, and and uh, there's another organization that you just uh, have recently uh, uh, done some joint uh, reports with um, the Americans for Tax Fairness. That's that's what I was looking for. An important important group. Yeah. Um, is I'm um, uh, trying to remember Americans for Tax Fairness, and I lost my train of thought. But um, I, I, I guess just as we uh, get close to wrapping up, um, is there is is there a viable plan in the works somewhere? that people could get behind that would help change the economy and make it fit better the current circumstances? I think there is, and uh, the, the pieces of that program are around. You know, when it comes to taxes, the Americans for Tax Fairness has a really good agenda that, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, President Biden actually has camp he campaigned on and has a lot of really good ideas for how to make the tax code more fair. Part of it is that we have to uh, enforce the existing tax code. You know, you have the IRS right now spends more time auditing and bothering people who get the earned income credit, which is for, you know, low-income working families, than these billionaires who are using, you know, complicated trusts to avoid the estate tax. So part of it's saying, look, let's enforce the existing rules. Let's strengthen... Uh, you know, the ability for, you know, and, and let's make the tax code more fair. Um, and at inequality.org, we have a lot of articles about sort of what are the other pieces of the agenda? You know, how can we help workers right now? Um, how do we ensure that the younger generation, people between 15 and 30, who are really in a different kind of economy than many of us older folks, you know, they're, they're, they're up against you know, huge amounts of college debt, 
uh, a slack economy. It's hard to get into it. It's hard to save. Um, you know, we need to invest in a way that helps lift up our younger workers so they can be productive in our society. There's a lot of win-win things I think that we can do right now. Well, I th- we're going to have to end it there, Chuck. But as always, thanks so much for spending a little time with me this morning. I look forward to our next conversation and the release of your uh, your new book. It'll be uh, fun to figure out, to, to follow the money. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Tom. And, yeah, I look forward to sending you to the new book. And best to everybody in Genesee, Genesee County and, and surroundings. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. That was Chuck Collins. And uh, we'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program right after this. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. to get some new girlfriends so I went and bought a Mercedes Benz a waste of money eight thousand bucks down the drain I thought the girls would get wild and reckless so I bought cultured pearls and a diamond necklace A waste of money That cost me 4000 more They were returned I got no girls they repossessed Both the car and the pearls I styled my hair just like Cary Grant's Bought a pair of those new tight pants A waste of money Household finance took my pants (laughs) The female gender I just Don't get it Just when I'm out Of both cash and credit I found a honey And this is what's funny She don't need my money She works for household finance This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! <laughs>